0: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the Finance Editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme... An assessment of social safety nets in poor countries reveals a mixed picture.
1: I mean, the first thing that jumps out at you when you look at these numbers is that uh, Latin America is much more generous as a rule than East Asia or South Asia.
0: And reported merger talks between two legal giants could herald a wave of transatlantic deals.
2: A lot of law firms will probably be looking at how that integration happens this time around if the deal goes ahead. If it turns out to be a success, then we might see more
0: of these. First, President Trump's repeated proposals for tariffs on Chinese products continue to threaten a trade war between the two countries. The president is ramping up a battle on the economic front, continuing to escalate the confrontation with China over trade. The president tweeting Saturday, quote, the United States hasn't had a trade surplus with China in 40 years, they must end unfair trade. Mr Trump seems convinced he'll get a deal with China. But on April 10th, Xi Jinping gave his first major speech since further consolidating his power with the Communist Party and showed few signs of capitulation. Our economics correspondent, Sumeya Keynes, joins me in the studio to discuss. Somaya, what did Mr Xi's speech reveal about his intentions?
3: Well, not much. So he outlined some promises to open up some sectors of the economy, to lower some tariffs. But largely, these were promises that had been made before. So it wasn't the Chinese folding in response to pressure from the Americans. They seem to be, for now, holding their cards to their chest. And, and to be honest, that's a fairly reasonable strategy given that. Last Friday, there was a Chinese statement saying that they weren't having intensive negotiations at the moment. So why would you give up something before you've had those intensive negotiations?
0: Can you tell us a bit more about the specific complaints that America has?
3: There's one theory out there that essentially all Donald Trump is interested in is some kind of deal that he can sell to his base. And my thesis is slightly different. I think that you really have to look at the substance of these complaints and allegations because those are the ones that are actually consistent across American administrations. And so if you read through the legal document, this big 301 investigation, which is the thing that gives Donald Trump the legal authority to threaten these tariffs in America, there's a variety of different complaints. One concerns a bit of Chinese law that they say is discriminating against foreign firms. And they've launched an official dispute about that at the World Trade Organization. And and really, in the grand scheme of things, that's a fairly straightforward disagreement to resolve. The Chinese will go through with the case. And, and if they lose, then either they will change the law or they'll be hit with some kind of retaliation. But it will happen within a system. There's something you can identify in that the Chinese could change. The other allegations are much bigger and fuzzier and just fundamentally difficult to enforce. So one is this accusation that when American companies enter into joint ventures with Chinese companies, which is this requirement in some sectors, even though the written rules don't require them to hand over their technology, unwritten rules, verbal agreements, pressure from local Chinese officials is somehow forcing them to hand over, you know, the the crown jewels of the American economy, their intellectual property. The Chinese have promised on multiple occasions that they will not do this, but fundamentally the problem with enforcing an unwritten rule is that it is unwritten. The other claims that America makes are even bigger. So they are essentially against China's industrial policy. So China wants to get rich. And its strategy of doing this has been to entice foreign companies and essentially try and get their technology because that's the thing that will allow them to leapfrog and you know catch up to um, American levels of prosperity. So the Americans are just very suspicious. A large chunk of this report, this investigation focuses on the investment that Chinese companies are making into America. So they're claiming that in some cases, the Chinese are paying too much for technology in America. That's
0: a really weird allegation, complaining that other people are paying you too much for something.
3: Yeah. And I think this fits into this sort of grand narrative, which is that the Americans don't want the Chinese to catch up on their dime. Their problem with all these purchases of American technology is that they're not market-based. So they say that the Chinese state is behind these purchases. So they're they're competing with American buyers who don't have such state support. And so those transactions aren't occurring in a free market. And that's what they object to.
0: This sounds like a really fundamental difference, both of philosophy on the two sides and also of strategy. Is there a way out of this?
3: I'm fairly pessimistic. I think that the allegations made in this report just strike at the heart of the Chinese strategy to get rich. What the Americans see as this kind of unfair theft, the Chinese see as their way of lifting millions and millions of people out of poverty when they joined the World Trade Organization, they gave up some policy levers and they see themselves as sort of nimbly taking advantage of the few levers that they have left to get rich.
0: Sameer Keynes, thank you. Next up, developed countries generally have social safety nets that alleviate poverty and support poorer members of society. A new report for the World Bank looks at social safety nets in the developing world and how they vary. Our Emerging Markets editor, Simon Cox, has been reporting on this for our issue this week. He joins us on the line from a conference hall in China to discuss. Simon, first, what is a social safety net?
1: Well, typically they will take the form of either a cash transfer, perhaps a public works programme, perhaps something like free school meals for children. The key to a safety net is that it's usually uh, something you get uh, regardless of whether you've contributed to it or not. So it's not like an insurance programme. And uh, they're usually distinguished by the fact that they try and save you from hitting a floor.
0: Do countries in different parts of the world take a different approach?
1: Well, that's right. And it's interesting to see different fashions in safety nets, if you like. I mean, the first thing that jumps out at you when you look at these numbers is that uh, Latin America is much more generous as a rule than East Asia or South Asia. So even taking into account the different sizes of the economies, uh, Mexico, for example, is about twice as generous as China. Uh, Argentina is also reasonably generous by East Asian standards.
0: And do they get value for money for that extra spending, do you think?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think that fashion in uh, Latin America has been towards giving money more or less unconditionally. So in South Asia, they tend to favour things like public works programmes. And the idea there is that uh, by Providing uh, money only in exchange for work, you screen out people who aren't really desperate. So you make people do quite hard, back-breaking work you know, in the, the hot sun, and that proves their neediness. It's quite a sort of old-fashioned Victorian idea. In fact, you know, it was sort of pioneered by uh, the colonial administrations during famines in India. They would create public works programs at some distance from the villages, because they thought if they had the work program too close to the village, then it might be uh, too cushy, uh, a job for, for, for um, screening out uh, the most needy cases. So in South Asia, they still spend quite a lot of money on public works programs. Uh, in Latin America, they're moving more towards cash transfer programs of various kinds. And there have been conditional ones where you get the money only if you, uh, for example, enroll your child in school or make sure your child gets their jabs. And there's also been some spread of unconditional cash transfers, uh, the view that uh, just giving money to the poor is the simplest way to alleviate their suffering.
0: So as you know, I spent several years living in Brazil and Brazil's um, Bolsa Família was one of the biggest of the conditional cash transfers, but the conditionality actually was fairly basic, exactly as you say that you had to send your child to school and give jabs. And that scheme was lauded worldwide for having uh, formed the basis of really quite a lot of the country's development during its good years, maybe between sort of 2003 and 2012. Uh, Do the figures suggest that those sorts of cash transfer programmes do help to build an economy and to build resilient strength in the future?
1: The usual worry, and perhaps a worry that's uh, prevalent in East Asia, is that uh, handouts create dependency. That if you have safety nets, you provide a crutch for people, and that might erode the work ethic. And it's much better to have sort of Bismarckian insurance systems where people get out something related to what they put in. That's the traditional view Uh, But I think that uh, recent evidence suggests that that's perhaps uh, not correct and that providing a safety net can actually uh, make people more productive. If you've got the re- reassurance of a safety net, it might mean that uh, you can make more calculated risks in your career plans, perhaps be a little bit more entrepreneurial. It might mean that you don't do self-destructive sort of coping strategies in emergencies, like pulling your child out of school and putting them to work, or in poorer countries, uh, slaughtering livestock that you actually need to maintain as an asset. So I think there is a case for um, even unconditional handouts, being not only good from the point of view of alleviating the suffering of the poor, but also being quite good for efficiency.
0: Simon, what should the very poorest countries in the world, which don't have much money to splash, what should they do?
1: Well, actually, a lot of the very poorest countries in the world um, have quite big social safety nets in proportion to their economies because their economies are so small. And a lot of these countries attract uh, outside assistance. So, for example, uh, South Sudan has a couple of uh, food programmes run by the World Food Programme. And they amount to 10% of its GDP, which is way above the average.
0: Thanks, Simon. That's really interesting. Enjoy your conference. If you've got any thoughts about Samea's analysis of the Sino-American trade dispute or have some views about social safety nets in developing countries, please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at and finally, merger talks are reportedly underway between two legal giants, Allen and Overy, a British law firm, and O'Melveny and & Myers, an American one. If the deal succeeds, it will be the first time since 2000 that one of London's prestigious Magic Circle firms had completed a transatlantic merger, and it would create the world's third biggest law firm by revenue. Rachana Shanbhog, our business correspondent, joins me to discuss. Hi, Rachana. Hi, Alan. So is this sort of a 50-50 thing, or does one side stand to gain more from it than the other?
2: Both sides probably stand to gain, but I think Alan Overy has the most to gain here. Um, It's been wanting to increase its exposure to the US market for a very long time now, like many of the other magic circle firms. The US legal market is extremely profitable. It's why American law firms are perhaps twice as much more profitable per partner than the magic circle firms. And it's been... A slightly hard market for the magic circle to tap into. And that's because they operate a different model of compensation for their partners compared with the American law firms. The British law firms use a method called lockstep, which basically remunerates partners on the basis of seniority, while the American firms use the slightly more dramatic model of eat what you kill, which is more merit based and involves partners being paid based on
0: the, the clients that they bring in. So why does that cause a problem when you're trying to merge? Do you have to try and deal with it differently on both sides of the Atlantic or do you have to decide which one you're going to go with? Well first of all it
2: creates a problem operating in the US market because you can't attract talent. And that's why you have to. That's why there's a sense that you have to merge in order to, to gain a foothold. And then there's the question of how you do the integration. So back in 2000, when Clifford Chance merged with an American firm, Clifford Chance was lockstep. The American firm operated an Eat What You Kill system. And it was very difficult, even though they tried to sort of meet in the middle, but the result was partners leaving. So a lot of law firms will probably be looking at how that integration happens this time around if the deal goes ahead. If it turns out to be a success then we might see more of these.
0: If the merger doesn't go ahead is this a big blow for Allen and Overy or can they just kind of keep going being a, a very big fish in a reasonably large pond?
2: Um, They can certainly keep going. They've already got offices in in New York and and Washington, D.C., I think. So it's not like they have no American presence. But, you know, they've made no secret in the past of wanting to find a suitable merger partner. So there's a very good chance that they'll just start talks with with other firms.
0: Thanks, Rachana. Thanks, Ellen. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything we've discussed, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.
1: Are you ready
0: to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation.